Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. of Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org, Rushbeater Training and Consulting, and hosted by me, the Commandante of the Mossy Oak Militia, Amazon best-selling author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Balfang Radio NC Scout. And today, I've got a very special guest with me, one that I think uh, a lot of you out there are really, really going to enjoy. It's a podcast that I've certainly been looking forward to because it's always great to talk to other trainers in this industry because I look at all of this and, and you know, I've talked about this a lot in the past. I look at everything that we do in the larger firearms community, the prepping community, the survival community the bushcrafting community, all, all of these communities, right, that that are um, doing great things out in the real world. I look at everybody that's working in all of this as colleagues and that it's it's our community that we have to build, our network of trainers that get together, that share what we do, that, uh, you know, build that that following because behind the scenes, this is a very, very small community. And a lot of people talk and, and, you know, everybody is bringing great stuff to the table. And this, this is one of those very special times, I think in, in American history where I don't think personally there's ever been a time where there have been so many knowledgeable, talented people who are bringing real world skills to the table. And, and, that is for all the, the crazy stuff that we could talk about in the United States and, you know, the doom and gloom stuff. That's something that everybody right now should be extremely proud of. Uh, I know I certainly am. And that's that's a ray of hope for the future. And with that said, I am joined by the owner of Intrepid Tactics, Mr. Bryce Colbert. What's up, brother? Hey, not much. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to doing this. So thanks for uh, thanks for bringing me on today. Yeah, man. I know I've been really excited. I, I, you know, we, we linked up via Twitter and of course, uh, my, my very close friend and one of my, my partners in crime old Patriot man, codename Patriot man over on American partisan, uh, it runs the official American partisan, uh, Twitter account. Cause the first one got yeeted. Uh, so it was a little too spicy and then, and the mods got it. 
but uh you know we, of course we got a we got a few more that are up now but uh, he reached out you know you've reached out you've been following me for a while and you know it, it's really cool now you're located out in washington state correct yeah that's right yeah i'm in western washington we actually had uh myself and a couple of friends went out to mechmedics course when he came out here so got an opportunity to train with him. I think some of my friends have been to your courses. I haven't had a chance yeah. to make it out yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Next chance that you're out, out our way. Oh yeah, man. You know, and, and I wanted you to point out specifically where you were because there's a outside of where you live, there is this common misconception that in states like Washington and really even California, and I would say um, the the northeastern states as well, and of course, you know, Illinois is certainly um, facing some some serious challenges right now. And I've I've had a lot of people reach out uh, the past couple of days about that. But you know, where you're located. A lot of people in the the rest of the United States really considers that, you know, no man's land when it comes to uh, firearms training, when it comes to, you know, our Second Amendment rights, when it comes to um, even, you know, working with prepared citizens and, and getting people better organized and having taught a bunch of classes out in, in your your area. You know, I had that misconception as well until I got out there. And once I got out there, I found this incredible community that was, you know, very, very well in tune to everything that's going on and and people that I would consider on the the very, very tip of the front lines of, of the fight for freedom. Yeah, absolutely. The stakes are actually pretty high here. And there are a lot of people that I think are more aware of what's going on because of our location than say, if you were in a place that you feel a bit safer in, right? So it's actually caused a lot of people to group together and to look for, you know, like-minded people and solutions to our current predicament, we'll say. There, uh, there are some trainers out here and I think there's a pretty big appetite for it. If you look at the just the numbers right if you look at you know some of the mountain west states like montana or idaho or wyoming or something like that if you look at say voting numbers in terms of uh, as a proxy for this guys that vote red versus blue we're losing in terms of you know winning elections out this way but there's numerically more people in some of these blue states that are voting red than there are in, in the western states right so we're essentially kind of captive uh in these uh you know politically uh, blue areas, if you will, just using that as sort of a, a rough rough way to explain it. Um, but there are a lot of like-minded people out here and a lot of people that are uh, looking to, to connect with other people like that. Yeah, 100%, man, 100%. And, and you know, something that, that you said at the very beginning of that, when you said that there, there's a huge population out there that is – really excited about training and gets out and engages in, um, you know, some really cool training events. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough, the, the times that I've been out there to interact with a lot of those folks and, and that that's a hundred percent correct. And what I'll say to that backing up something else that you said that, that you guys are really more in tune to the political goings on than, 
a lot of other people in in other areas that you know say like uh tennessee for example even here in north carolina you know gun rights restrictions are are really not politically viable here and uh for the most part we, we do have a few issues and so that's not really what's on the forefront of a lot of people's minds um you know and and you guys on the other hand know that you have to be out there you have to be engaged and uh it, it's really really incredible to see that you know the, the first time that i was out in washington uh, i got the opportunity to interact with a very large group of preparedness folks and and this this was one of the uh bigger gatherings in the state and that was a really incredible experience and i wandered right into that blind uh you know i was asked to come speak at, at a um at an event and i was already out there uh i had just run the first scout course that was out there uh, followed up by the rto course and I said, yeah, sure, I, I'd love to, you know, thinking that it was going to be a meeting of, you know, maybe 10 people, maybe 20 people, whatever. Uh, and I get there and there's like 200 people in, in this place where they were meeting. And I was just like, man, wow. You know, I wish we could get that many people together and, and on the same page here in North Carolina. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge appetite for it here. And I think it's people are starting to realize that and I, I would suspect it's similar in other areas like you talked about illinois right uh, and all that they've got coming down the pipe really feel for them uh but i would imagine that you're going to have similar similar receptions in places like that right where you know you, you kind of realize where things are at and there's a not just a desire but a real need to uh you know get prepared and to like you said lobby for your second amendment rights washington state's an interesting one in that we've got a lot of we've actually got a lot of firearms culture out here right and manufacturers businesses around it so even though politically there's been some opposition to it there's a pretty large groundswell of support really apolitically even on, on kind of both sides of things in terms of uh second amendment rights so it, it's counterintuitive, right? You'd think, ah, oh, that's not a quote unquote, like conservative place, but there is uh, a pretty, pretty heavy appetite for training for uh, firearms courses and for expanding that really. It really is, man. You know, my biggest scout course that I ever taught uh, up until this last one that I had that, that was here in North Carolina. But the, the biggest one that I ever had was actually out in Washington. It was that second one where I think we, we have some mutual friends that, that were in that class. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was that was really, really incredible because being out there with um, I think there was 25 in that class. And, you know, you, you just look around and, and these guys are so dialed in. They're so engaged in what they're doing. And every one of them knew, you know, to a man, they, they all knew what they were out there, what they were about, why they were there. Um, and, you know, I, I referenced that that specific course um, 
quite a bit because it was that one was a test for me because I went out there with a pretty nasty uh, sinus infection. And, um, you know, I get out there. So, like, you know, I'm not feeling 100 percent. But, you know, it, you, you got to bring your A game every time. And we get out there. And, uh, you know, the year prior that I had been out there and running that class in Cascades, you know, it was it was beautiful. It was like 70 degrees. It was nice at night, like it was a little windy, but it wasn't bad. It was perfect. And I get out there this go around and we had a doggone ice storm, like freezing rain and ice. And it was just man, it was it was miserable. And, uh, you know, like there were a couple of guys that that uh, went hypothermic in that class for a little bit. So, we, you know, we had to kind of take an hour to, to get them to warm back up. But, you know, something I never heard. And I, I've had people in other classes where, you know, the weather conditions get a little rough or whatever. And, you know, you'll have a couple of guys bow out of some stuff. All right. You know, it is what it is. Um, but nobody complained. Nobody you know, said, Hey, I'm not doing this. I'm out of here. Every one of those guys was hard chargers, you know, and I let them know that, that, Hey, this, these are pretty rugged conditions right now. And it, this, this is realistic training because you never know, you, you know, when you're doing, uh, when the real world application of small unit tactics, you, you're going to end up getting into all kinds of different weather conditions. That's just the nature of the beast. Like we, we don't fight when it's, 75 and sunny all the time you know so uh they but but it was rough uh even by my standards it was rough and the fact that nobody complained nobody bowed out and said hey you know i can't do this it and everybody completed all of the objectives out there it it was huge man it really really was Yeah, it's awesome to hear. There's a lot of people out here, too, that are pretty well acquainted with that that type of weather. And it may go unnoticed a bit, but, you know, you got somebody that's in your course that's, a, say, a lineman, and he's used to pulling, you know, overtime shifts in storms, you know, f- fixing uh, fixing things for the rest of us. He comes to your course, right? That's, yep. you know, that's normal for him, right? We, we think of that as like, oh, yeah, that's that's tough, tough military stuff, right? That's... Uh, you know, like back when I was in, you know, whatever training course. Yeah, I, got, I had to not sleep. Well, there are other guys doing that in their normal day jobs right now, too. You know, and that, that's a yep, lot yep. of the sort of guys that you get out out in some of these courses. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and that's that's the coolest part about it is that you get people from all walks of life. And and, it you know, it, for me, I, I'm I'm very optimistic about everything and and you know you you have to be people who are pessimistic all the time typically don't win um you know that, that's just kind of my observation on life is, yeah. is that the guys who are eternal pessimists they don't typically perform very well it's just it's part of it uh you got to believe you're gonna win before you can even start a fight you know but um you know we, i mean you you get to see as trainers, we get to see the 10,000 foot level of really the incredible people that make up this, this wonderful firearms community, the survival community, the prepping community, you know, whatever you want to call it, conservative Americans, patriotic Americans, we get to see that and we get to observe their, their 
energy that they bring to it and the diversity of skill that they bring to the table. And it's, it's just so incredible. What's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, the, the community aspect of this is really probably the most important part. In my opinion, the people that come out to these courses are pretty amazing. The pessimism thing that you talked about. uh, Yeah. You don't see that much, right? It's sort of self-selecting for guys and for people that are looking for, you know, ways out of things or, or ways to uh, ways to improve uh, their position, if you will, right? Always improve your position. So you find some really incredible people at, at these uh, at these training events, and really a, a caliber that I don't know that I've seen anywhere else, right? Uh, you know, m- maybe you could point to some you know special military units and things like that where you got. Uh, real high achievers, but you get kind of that same caliber of people. Um, you know, some of them don't know that that's who they are, <laughs> right? You, you know, they're real humble and uh, uh, they don't know that they're, you know, um, as incredible individuals as they are, right? Um, but when you get all those guys together working towards a common purpose, training on a, a common common thing, it's amazing. It really is, man. It really, really is. So, you know, the the community is is such an incredible thing, and and a lot of the trainers that make it up. You know, one of the the neat things that I find with this and and sharing, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of experiences with other trainers out there is also the diversity of backgrounds that a lot of trainers bring to the table, and and uh, you know, experiences and. And I have a lot of people, a lot of times in class, they'll ask me, you know, like about other people in, in the industry. And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, hey, what do you think about this guy? What do you think? And I always tell them the same thing, you know, go train with them and you figure out, you know, don't don't go off of what I have to say. You know, if, if you have a good experience with a trainer out there, then awesome. And, and, and you know, if you don't, well, you know, then, then you don't. But you take the, the good with the bad and, uh, you know, you, you, you pull those experiences out. So what led you to start training people out there? What went into your course methodology? Um, you know, you, you offer uh, pistol courses, you offer rifle courses. And uh, you, I think that you're doing some really good things to the firearms community out there. What led you to become a trainer and, and to start offering courses to the public? Yeah, so my professional background in it, I, w- I was a Green Beret for a number of years, spent some time in Afghanistan, spent some time in other parts of the world training people. And so I did this professionally for quite a while in that context, it, something that some people may be aware of, but a lot wouldn't necessarily know. Green Berets, one of our nicknames was uh, foreign drill sergeants, right? Because we'd go run training for a lot of foreign militaries and counterterrorism units and all that. So uh, that was my professional background previously. I left that world, got out of the military, went into a completely different career field, uh, still shot a little bit and still still trained a bit. Really, 2020 was when things changed for me in that regard, in that things got pretty spicy here, <laughs> right? They, they got a little uh, um, little rough in Western Washington and mu- much of the United States, right? I saw that 
we lost freedom of movement in our area. There was, you know, lots of threats against people, that sort of thing. So I started training people that summer, really met up with some, you know, start with kind of friends and family and acquaintances. Uh, there was one training course that I did where uh, it was mostly acquaintances, guys that I didn't really know all that well, that I wasn't doing this as a business yet. And I decided, all right, I'm going to make a cool, cool carbine course for these guys. So I'd been reading old history books. And one of the American history books that I uh, had been reading had this account of Hannah and Thomas Dustin, right? So Hannah Dustin is famous. She was the first woman in the United States to have a statue made in her honor. Uh, this was actually the story takes place in uh, pre pre United States. So it's like colonial America. Uh, she got captured by some Abenaki raiders and uh, escaped by scalping a bunch of them and taking a canoe down the river, getting back to her, her husband. Right. Uh, so it's pretty amazing story that had been mostly lost to, to time. Right. Like I'd never heard of it. I didn't know of anybody that had, had heard of it other than this, like, you know, hundred year old history book that I was reading. Um, so I framed the course around her husband. Right. Her husband, when this raid happened, had to make this rough choice where he had most of his family out in the field working with them and his wife had just given birth like eight days earlier. So she was in, in her home uh, with, with a wet nurse attending to the kid. And he grabs his, you know, what I assume would have been an English smoothbore musket, gets on his horse, fights off the raiders and gets his, the majority of his kids and his family back to, uh, back to a safe house, right? Um, an old block house like they used to build back in the day. So I framed that course around that idea. It's a Thomas Dustin carving course. And the idea is you, you get your rifle and you get your family to safety. And this is how you do it. So we're going to teach you the, you know, the tools that you need, the shooting techniques that you need to be able to do that in, in, a, in kind of a fun way. There's some competition and there's some, you know, some kind of traditional carving shooting drills. Uh, but that that's what I frame my courses around. I started doing that for the other ones too. I'm going to take a cool historical American gunfight and I'm going to teach people that scenario. Man, that is awesome. I think uh, one of the, the most important things that, that you are bringing to the table right now is the historical aspect. Um, you know, as you know, coming from the the world of of SF and and special operations, that building the esprit de corps of whatever it is, you know, whether that's um, you know your 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 traditional guerrilla force, you know that that, that we kind of reference quite a bit, um, you know, or or it's a job that that entails a, a lot of history. You still have to bring that that esprit de corps to it because that that creates a common bond among people and, and it's so important and uh you know here at my, my training site in north carolina uh i have a, a revolutionary war veteran that is buried on it and i take everybody to the cemetery he's, he's buried there with his family and um you know i i take them there tell them the story uh it's a, a pretty unique story it, it was a critical story as well from from uh, the american revolution and uh the, the southern campaign uh, of cornwallis and and how it you know w one of the, the critical 
it led to a critical victory of Nathaniel Green and, you know, what what we would come to call his guerrilla force that was made up of, of individual militiamen and bands of militiamen from different counties uh, right along the, the North Carolina and Virginia border all the way down into Greensboro. And so it's, it's just very interesting. And I always like to tie that in. And I think what uh, what you're doing in tying in unique pieces of history, unique pieces of relevance to why you're training. It's not just what you're doing. It's not just, you know, executing those drills and, you know, it's stuff that uh, anybody really could, could do this with enough practice and enough rounds, enough range time, but you're learning why. And I think that is so doggone important. Definitely. That's an amazing story on the Revolutionary War here, too. The the history that you got out in North Carolina on the East Coast is really incredible, right? And we have some of that out here, but not quite to the same you know degree and depth that you've got uh, that way. In some ways, when I head out that way, it feels like we're going back to old America, right? To the old country. Uh, and I love love it. A lot of the stories... <laughs> in some ways, in some yeah. ways, I mean... I, it, there's there's different experiences in different parts uh, of the United States, and I think that's what makes it so unique. You know, like I've I've done classes in the Northeast, and when whenever I've been up there, it's like they they kind of have that old English. Uh, you know, I mean, being in New England, they have that that old English style, uh, even the roads, like the the names of things, the way the homes are designed. And it's just this whole uh, unique culture. They eat baked beans with everything. I mean, it's it's real, real like a, a throwback to Britain. You know, af- after working with the British a little bit in Afghanistan, it was kind of like, um, you know, it, Go going to the Northeast, like, you know, I'd been up there a few times as a kid and, you know, it didn't really sink in. But as an adult, it was a whole different thing. And, you know, the, the Southeast has its own culture for sure. But going out West, it was just this unique. Um, I would say one thing that I would note about you guys out West and kind of the the culture of the Pacific Northwest is that you have a unique, you have a very unique uh, tie to the land out there. And I think that that a lot of that has to do with the the pioneer existence, which, you know, from, from the 1880s forward, um, you guys had a very close connection to the land out of necessity out there. And and that culture still keeps true today. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, thinking thinking through my own history, my grandparents all grew up on homesteads, right? So we're not that far removed from uh, from that. And some some people are still are doing that, right? There's still the land and the space to do that here. The uh, some of the history stuff, right? Like the the blockhouse I was talking about, the Dustin's moving to the islands out here still have those on them, right? They're, they're maybe a hundred years old, but if you go and look for them on some of the islands in the Puget Sound, there are old blockhouses that were built to uh, be places that families that were living on those islands could move to if they were getting raided by, uh, you know, Native American tribes at the time. 
which was a real, real risk. And no one was coming for him, right? They were completely on their own. Like there was the, the response from the, the U.S. Army or something would have been, you know, weeks or months, if if at all. So we are closer, I think, in time to that frontier, uh, you know, at homesteading, uh, settling culture than a lot of the other parts of the, the country are, which is uh, it is pretty interesting, right? Even the, the mining towns and stuff like that out here, they're not that old. <laughs> they're pretty recent, you know? Uh, it's just they've kind of been built over with uh, uh, our current version of, uh, of things. But yeah, and people carry that with them, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, it's... And and that's one of the things, too, when, when people talk, you know, strategic relocation, quote unquote, and, um, you know, I, I'm not faulting anybody for heading out to, you know, greener pastures. I, I mean, that's one of the reasons that, that people migrated out west, um, you know, in, in that that manifest destiny era of, you know, probably the, the 1830s or so through, you know, uh, I, I would say right up until the early 1900s, um, the, the whole reason that people migrated out there. And so, but with that said, you can't necessarily undervalue the bonds that are created by culture and the unifying culture. And the the uh, that local knowledge of a place, you know, when when um, from like uh, our perspective being overseas, you know, the, the intel analysts would do their area study and, you know, we, we would we would get an idea of, of whatever the local culture is, whatever the situation is on the ground. And, you know, there, there's a variety of things that, that you can uh, do with that. You know, but one of the big ones is, is how to build ties with the local culture. And that's something that I think in the United States, it, it, we, we have a hard time with that in modern society. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges of the preparedness movement is that everybody is so used to this, this kind of isolationist uh, point of view. It, it, it's a little difficult to describe. Um, but, but they're so used to, I'm, I'm going to be an individual and it's kind of like me and and my immediate family against the world and they leave out the community aspect of it. And I think that's why when, when I went out to Washington, all of a sudden seeing, you know, 200 P 200 plus people of this prepping community that were now, you know, hearing this, this, uh, you know, this jackass from North Carolina, stand in front of them and speak for a little while. I was so impressed by that. Um, based on your experiences, your life experiences, and and now, you know, your experiences as a trainer doing this, what do you say to all that? Yeah, I think it's actually the most important thing that we're doing is building that community. And in some ways, the the training serves as a vehicle for that. The training is is good in of, of itself, and it's important to do. But the bonds that people make going to those events, and the people that you meet, and the way that you're able to, you know, reform some of those connections is is real important. I think you hit the nail on the head with the isolationism uh, that we've we've moved to of it's just going to be me just going to be my immediate family or, or the circle close to me that i'm caring about in the world and you know that that can get you some way but that's not 
going to get us out of where we're at right now. <laughs> you know, you, you need the bonds, you need the community, you need people to help you out. When things get hard, uh, you know, you can only do so much on your own. I've seen that with my own circle of, uh, you know, tr trusted people will say out here in Western Washington in the last couple of years, especially where guys are banding together, the families are banding together for, uh, you know, to help each other out, out of a sense of service, if nothing else to each other really not looking out necessarily for themselves, but for, you know, their neighbors or their pe people that are, you know, aligned with them like-mindedness wise. And it's incredible to see, you know, that that takes the form of helping people out when they're sick or when there's a natural disaster or, you know, even security situations sometimes. I've seen a lot of personal examples of that as things have gotten a little bit rougher in our area, both in terms of, you know, crime going up and, power outages from snowstorms and dealing with, you know, all the illnesses the last couple of years that have really, you know, strengthened my faith in people being able to form those communities, help each other out and get through hard times. hundred percent, man, a hundred percent. And I mean, you know, you're speaking from straight from experience and straight from the heart when you say that, I mean, we, we both know, you got to sleep sometime. I mean, when you're when you're implementing a, a security plan inside the patrol base, you know, inside your preppers retreat, you know, your homestead, whatever it is, you got to you have to sleep at some point. Like yep. your, your body's just going to shut down. I mean, I, I'm I am very certain we've both had those times where where we were zombies, uh, you know, like literal walking zombies on, on yeah. a movement. Those rivets um, only go so far, you know. It only takes you <laughs> to a certain point. I mean, I, I've there's been a few times where I like I didn't remember part of the movement that we were on. It was just like, oh, um, yeah. So we totally just did that, you know. Like I, I totally just moved about four miles and don't really remember it. Um, you know, just it, it, it's one of those things that like if, if people people haven't experienced it they don't know and, and your greatest asset at that point is people and the personnel that you have around you and what are those common bonds and i think um you know to, to share a personal story from uh from washington and it was that first scout course i taught out there you know is a perfect illustration of of the point you know not everybody has to be this hard charging trigger puller, um, you know, what we think of is, is, you know, like, like wearing all the kit and, you know, looking like they, they, they're going to go out and kick doors in and, you know, all that stuff, traditional, like what we think of, there are plenty of people who, you know, let's say they're getting on up there in age or, um, you know, maybe they have some physical limitations, but they're still coming out to training. And they're really, really incredible. And in in our context, and you know, training people for uncertain times, for rough times ahead, that's really, really critical to understand. So that first scout course when I was out there, I had a 62-year-old grandmother. And this is my greatest success story as a trainer. She came out, 
she brought out a rifle that was uh it had she you know she she didn't own any ar-15s or like you know anything that we would consider a, a fighting weapon right and she's a grandmother like she's she's got uh several granddaughters you know and and i always like to to kind of talk to everybody this in in the course like throughout the duration of the course and figure out what their motivation is like why they're there and so she brings this rifle out that she got from her neighbor and you know it, it was questionable let's just say it was kind of a questionable build quality weapon um it was giving her some problems it, it wasn't functional and so somebody else that was in class handed her a weapon because that, that first day you know we, we work on uh marksmanship for it taking up from zero to 400 meters and uh so she had never shot an AR-15 before. She had went to an apple seed, but that was it. And, you know, we get to the um, the uh, shooting steel, you know, known distances. I, I knew the distances because we put the steel up, but they didn't know. Um, you know, and she's getting out to 400 meters and she's just ringing every one of these Iron Maidens all the way out to 400. That's and after awesome. every, yeah, man. And, and after every hit, she would look, she would come up off the gun and she would look at me and say, I hit it. Said, yeah, yeah, you hit it. Why? Well, I got lucky. And I said, no, physics does not account for luck. Okay. Physics requires application of skill, which is what you did. And she said, I can't wait to teach my granddaughters this. You know, they, it would be easy for a lot of guys you know, the, the, all, all the guys that buy all the gear and, you know, cool guys and, and everything. And, and really, you know, for, for guys that are coming from the dot mill world, you know, we, we typically would dismiss somebody like that. You know, there was a point in time in my life, you know, where if I saw like, you know, I was, I was picking, uh, the people for a training course and I'm just, you know, weeding out the ones I think are, are not going to make it. You know, there's certain people that you would say, well, you know, she probably doesn't have a lot of value. But as a civilian, it's it's that that totally turns it on its head, because now, despite the fact that, you know, she's probably not throwing on a 70 pound ruck and humping up and down the cascades. That ain't happening. Right. That's that that's not going to happen for her. But what she can do is she can teach her granddaughters how to shoot now quickly and efficiently and she has that confidence to say hey i know how to do this and i did it and this is how we're gonna do it by just applying the basics you know and and that's huge that's huge as a trainer have have you ever interacted with somebody maybe like that and and what's your greatest success story out of being a trainer yeah, I've got a similar story to that. It was a lady that was in my basic pistol course. I was doing just a real intro pistol course, right? Not even the the advanced shooting, just, hey, first time shooters or people that need to brush up on fundamentals. And she had never shot before. Her, she'd grown up in a family that she described as being uh, anti-gun, pacifist, really really against it, but she saw crime rising in the specific area that she was in and wanted to be able to protect her family, right? And she had some pretty justified concerns, like things were getting kind of rough around her. So she, on her own, decided, hey, I'm going to go sign up for a pistol course, found mine, 
made it to made it to the course and uh, did amazing, like overcoming her her difficulties with it. If you've had someone in course in class before that is not accustomed to guns, I'm, sh I'm sure that you have. Sometimes uh, it can be overwhelming for them, right? Just you know the anxiety of it and and dealing with you know. Uh, the brass coming out for the first time and like hitting them on the shoulder is is usually a. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did I shoot myself? Oh, yeah. No, no, that's that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> right. So th this lady, um, you know, qualified, did the course of fire, uh, and outshot some of the other people in the course. Her first time ever ever shooting a pistol, and I think that was the biggest, you know even more so than like the people that are used to going out to gravel pits and shooting and coming to the course and, and kind of learning, um, which I love those, those people too. But this lady overcoming her own kind of fears and indoctrination and uh, to be able to do that and leave the course so confident that she had done that, uh, I think was really amazing for me. And, and something that I was pride myself in having given her, you know, that experience and being able to serve her in that way to where she's going home confident that she, you know, can shoot a pistol if she needed to, but also just that she can overcome things that are very difficult for her, you know, uh, mentally, if you will. Right. I, I think that yeah. that as much as anything is the, the real win in that, that scenario. Oh man. Yeah. It, and to me, you know, and, and you probably feel the same way, that's your biggest reward as a trainer, you know, that that's, that is the, the, when, when I don't even know, like you, like you beam with pride about it, but it's also validation, you know, no matter how many classes you teach, like you, you always have that dichotomy of skill that, that comes, you, you have those guys that show up and, and uh, you know, you, you kind of wonder like, are you going to learn anything? from me like are, are you going to learn anything new because they're already really good at, at whatever the task is that, that the course is covering um you know they, they have a level of professional experience that, that you know sometimes it exceeds your own and then you have those those students that are you know they've never touched a firearm before and to me man that's the biggest reward when they walk away with that confidence now that I can do this. I can do this. I did this. I can do this. And, and really for me is, is that, uh, you know, that lady in question, who knows how many other people that she's going to take to a public range somewhere and, you know, do something simple with those skills. And she's multiplying that. And it's just creating this larger culture of firearms proficiency, which is really something special. Yeah, I think the the training philosophy there too. The you know to, to use something from the military, the train the trainer philosophy is really important in this context. In that, what you're doing by training these folks is really you know extending that knowledge out in a network that greatly exceeds your own influence. The one of the lessons learned from you know being overseas in Afghanistan and other par parts of the world is that you can't do it all on your own, right? Like, it doesn't matter how good of a, a shooter you are. I can't be at 
you know, every house in my neighborhood uh, on any given night watching for intruders, right? But I can train other people to be able to do that. I can train my friends to be able to defend themselves. I can train this lady to be able to defend her family and to pass that knowledge on to. And that is actually how you get to a better security situation in, in pragmatic terms than anything else, right? It's like, yeah, the, you know, to look at where things are at right now in terms of just crime in in the country and a lot of the major cities, the amount of crime that's going on, and a lot of this is policy driven, but it it's yep. outstripping what the police can do, right? So it de facto falls on the on the shoulders of you know whoever's there <laughs> to do what they can, uh, and if that happens to be you, you want to be well prepared for that. So and it extends beyond you too, right? Like if if you're in a state of lawlessness, uh, or even if it's temporary lawlessness, and you're the person that's you know most capable you are the responder to that situation right before you know anybody else gets there um so you know the, the onus is really on you to to do what you can uh and i think passing that knowledge on to as many people and those skills onto as many people as i can is you know my, my motivation in this because i want I want people to be able to, you know, live their lives, raise their families, uh, go to work and, and feel like they can do that, um, you know, even if things are getting a little rough around them. Yeah, 100 percent, man. You know, going back to that community defense and that community protection model, you know, uh, with Jack Lawson Civil Defense Manual, you know, the, the whole premise of the book is kind of um, his experience from Rhodesia and, you know, a lot of the, the uh, farm attacks, the, the homestead attacks that occur and in, in, uh, occurred at the time in Rhodesia. And we see that that are occurring in South Africa. And he's got a lot of unique takes on that. And, you know, th that's something that we are seeing in various ways. We're, we're kind of approaching the topic differently here in the United States. Uh, but. It, it is something that is occurring and, you know, we're seeing that coming out of Texas now, you know, I've taught a lot of classes in South Texas and, and down there, they, they're having that occur. They're having a lot of breaking in enterings, um, in, and armed encounters in many cases, utilizing, um, a variety of different weapons. Um, but, but even things we wouldn't consider weapons, you know, like, like hammers and, uh, power tools and machetes, and this is it's a trajectory that we are on. And even though, you know, the, the news media is not really going to talk about it because they're busy propagandizing everything else. Right. But this is very real for folks on Main Street. And the, the point is, is that, you know, law enforcement shows up to respond to a situation that is already unfolded. Right. You know, if you can react to that, if you can exist within their reactionary gap and circumvent a lot of that, you know, for a perfect example, uh, much is being made out of uh, the, the hero in Houston where a guy walks in to rob the taco shop and he's robbing everybody in there. And the guy rightfully, you know, he stands up, he takes care of business and he leaves. You know, and, and and they're making a whole lot out of this, but the guy stood up and said, "Nah, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to take this laying down," and he did what I think needed to be done, 
if somebody is in there, they're armed, they're trying to rob you, they're taking what you've earned, and they're they're threatening violence for it. Well, you know, live by the sword, you're gonna die by the sword. You know, it and and at that point, the training, the training uh mentality, the uh the the overcoming of the anxiety that you know that that freeze effect that you know a lot of us have experienced i remember first firefight that i was in i was literally frozen and my team leader had to grab me he he physically grabbed me from behind and yanked me up and you know i was so fixated on the corner of this building that you know like uh, i'm i'm in a firefight and i was so dialed in on that you, you know, you, you, you get that tunnel vision training overcomes all of that. And when, when your aggregate training level in a neighborhood is higher than, you know, just Timmy going out with dad and learning how to shoot a shotgun at, you know, pheasants or something, when, when you're actually training people for, for armed encounters, right. One-on-one, the application of force Bringing that aggregate level up is a critical task, you know, and 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 that is something that I think a, a a lot of people, a lot of people who are already indoctrinated to our mindset, they get it, but you know, the the lady that you had in class that never touched a, a pistol before, and all of a sudden now she becomes proficient with one, that's somebody you can lean on if she's in your neighborhood or she's in your community, that's somebody you can lean on. There's a basic level of, of training competency there, you know? Yeah. Once you get people, the basics, the fundamentals, they can, they can take it a long ways from there too. You start them off well, and they can take that, you know, the basic safety stuff, even right. The, you know, doing a three point safety check and how to clear and make, make, uh, make your weapon safe and all that. Um, then you can go on and do all sorts of stuff as a follow on. Another aspect that I've incorporated into my trainings that I think helps with the stress inoculation is competition. So each one of my courses ends in a, in a competition, right? And some of those are just like a single stage of, you know, something kind of akin to like a USPSA type match, right? Where, yeah, you have a course of fire that you got to shoot through and whoever does the best in terms of, you know, hit hits on target and time, you know, uh, goes away the winner. Uh, but my favorite one is the the Wild Bill Quick Draw course. It's our first uh, first pistol course, and I have I do a tournament style. Have guys draw on a buzzer on steel at 25 yards, and whoever hits their their steel target first wins, right? And then moves on to the next round. Uh, but the the kicker that I've added into it is adding some. Uh, the last time I did it, at least I added some music to it right so the theme song from the good the bad and the ugly right uh, I think oh yeah old. yeah yeah and then somewhere in that song you know I, I hit the buzzer right and these guys got to draw but it upped the stress level for them right and they told me that afterwards like man i was sweating right because we were used to just like all right beep go beep go and then it's like yeah two three minutes of waiting when's he gonna do it when's he gonna do it and then you go right uh so so it uh but it serves as a way to you know, that's not the same thing as as being in a gunfight per se, but it is, you know, upping things a little bit to uh, help you deal with kind of uncertain situations. Right. And, uh, you know, getting you a, a bit closer to that stress inoculation than you would be otherwise. Yeah, man. You know, and, and it's little things like it, it doesn't have to be complicated. Like it, it, that's that's another thing that uh, 
you know, working with some of these other guys that, that, uh, you know, I, I've helped build up, they, they come to me with like their ideas for classes and stuff, which are, which are all brilliant, you know? And I always tell them like, Hey, keep things simple. Like keep it, keep it as simple as possible. You can add in stuff, but keep it simple. Make sure you're, you're keeping every one of like, whether it's a, a rifle drill or, you know, it's, it's whatever the, the situation is, man. Um, keep it simple. And I, I think that that's adding in music and it just throws them off that little bit. Dude, that's genius. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Guys love that course, right? They, uh, they see it as, um, you know, something they've never done before. Right. And that's, that's one of the things that you can give people, I think in training that they can't give themselves. That That's part of why I like to go to training. Like I've done a ton of training, you know, been in a lot of different situations, but I really love when somebody sets up a scenario for me that I would have a hard time doing on my own. Right. Even if it's just like running the range for the day, but uh, you know, or, you know, crawling through the mud or something like that. Right. Like, my range training, you know, this weekend, I'm not going to put on the docket like a low crawl through the mud. But if I'm going through someone's training course and they're like, yeah, you got to go under that wire. Absolutely. I'm going to do it, you know. Uh, and then coming out of that, people love it. Right. They're like, oh, yeah, that was, yeah. you know, what, I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone. You had me doing something different for the day. You know, that, yeah, that really got me going. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, ah, it's so cool. And it, it it's and and it's it's little things like that, you know, that, that, uh, it doesn't matter what somebody's experience level is like little, little challenges that kind of throw them off. Uh, you know, you're not necessarily standing on the firing line all day, uh, you know, draw, get into your, get into that good isosceles stance and sight picture and trigger squeeze and all that stuff, right. You, you're, you're throwing other things, other elements into the mix that adds a level of realism um adds little stressors here and there and that, that's such a cool thing um you know with, with just a few minutes left man talk us through the basic handgun and basic rifle setup that you suggest for an armed and prepared citizen because we've got a lot of people out there that are I wouldn't say necessarily just waking up to the realities of, of the, the challenges we face, but they are definitely getting more serious about it. And so, you know, I have a lot of people that reach out to me that, that you know, want recommendations for gear. And, you know, it, it is part and parcel of, of the world in which we live that, that you know, people want to buy the things. And so what is your suggested setup for a handgun? and a rifle? That's a great question. So for a handgun, I think you have two routes right now in terms of, you know, decently priced standard handguns that you could go after that have wide adoption. And that's the Glock 19 or, or similar Glocks and a SIG P320. Uh, both of those are great, great striker fired pistols and they'll, they'll both work for you. I would suggest getting something with a red dot on it because I do think that it enhances your ability uh, to shoot and to shoot accurately, keep both eyes open, shoot at range. So uh, I'm a big red dot proponent. You should learn irons. It, you know, if you get get the opportunity to, everybody should be able to to run their backup sights and all that. Um, but a, a red dot on a Glock 19 or, or a Sig P320 
uh, would be my recommendation for pistol. And then I, I like to run a light on it. Um, and then I, I usually go for something that is for a first pistol, first handgun, something that is multi-purpose. So Glock 19 is a you know four inch barrel that can be concealed or more or less works as a dedicated sidearm. It's not a full frame pistol, but it's a, um, you know, a nice trade-off between the two, which is why it has wide adoption. Uh, SIG is the other, you know, other big player, I would say. And they've got, uh, they won the army contract for the, what is it, M17, M18 now. Um, so kind of the same deal there. They've got a bunch of different variants. That platform is really cool. And it may end up being the future and that you can really customize what you build around it. That said, the magazines are real expensive and you can, you know, kind of choose your own adventure <laughs> with, with a SIG platform at this point. Um, so I'm still shooting Glock myself uh, right now, but I think either of those are a good choice. And then when you're getting into uh, to rifle, um, you know, PSAs aren't bad for a very, like, uh, for an entry-level starting point, right? Especially if you really don't know what you want or what you're, what you're going after. I wouldn't spend a ton of money on a rifle um, for your first go because you're probably going to buy a second rifle once you get into it uh, a little bit. And you kind of want one as a backup anyways. You want, like, a, at least a backup bull carrier group and some parts, right? Um, so... You know, PSA after that, uh, I'm a big fan of Aero Precision as, uh, you know, a little bit of a step up from that, I'd say, in terms of uh, quality and price, um, but still pretty affordable. You know, you're not getting into the, the really high price stuff yet. And then from there, you know, in terms of uh, optics, you can start with a, a Six Hour Romeo 5 or, you know, a similar Holosun. Um, those are serviceable red dot sites and they work pretty well in terms of their battery life, always on feature or shake, shake on feature. Uh, I've used them a good deal and yeah, they're not as quite as good as your higher end, you know, American made optics, uh, but they're a great entry level, entry level point. Um, and then, you know, from, from there you want, uh, uh, magazines, right? Um, I'd suggest 10 magazines for Per, per rifle and then spend money on tra training ammo and a sling and you need a sling for your rifle Re really important on that part um oh yeah you know that, that's sort of the the bare minimum i would say to get you started um so sling for your rifle and definitely a holster for your pistol go with something with retention like a safari land uh you know just bite the bullet on it yeah man it, that's uh i, I mean you know, one of the things that I think is is also really neat about the number of trainers who are out there now, which, you know, there's there's hundreds of guys, if not thousands, and, and there's more that are popping up all the time. But really, if if you look at it, if you look at like the the commonality of equipment that has emerged out there, I mean, what you described is is really kind of become the de facto standard of, hey, you know, the, this is what works. And, and there's a reason for that because it works. It, it, this is something that, you know, both of these weapon setups that you've talked about here are pretty much what we use to do business overseas. Um, you know, and in some cases, like with the, the Glock uh, running a, a Trijicon RMR on it, I mean, that that's a little bit nicer. I don't know about now, you know, because I, I've been out for um, a, a decade now. It's just kind of hard to believe. But, you know, th those were the kind of setups that, you know, for lack of a better term, we would have called that Gucci 
uh, back then, but we didn't, we didn't get to carry all that. Um, you know, and, and when it comes to, to a rifle, the aggregate baseline level equipment out there, you know, you, you can get a, a Palmetto state with a, a free float barrel on it. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's a perfectly serviceable weapon. You know, and and we with with the M4, you know, the, the standard M4, it doesn't have a free float barrel on it. The the accuracy threshold is for MOA. Um, you know, we we did have ACOGs. Um, you know, some folks were were running uh, M68s or, or Comp M4s, but uh, you know, as as red dot sites. But you know, with a, a mini red dot site and that level of capability, that's you know, these these two weapon setups here. You could have a minimum investment of probably two thousand dollars, and have a a fully functional setup that you can train with, that you can get out there and and uh, be very combat effective with, for really a, a minimal investment, you know. Yeah, that's really putting you uh, you know at, at par better than what we were going overseas with you know 15 years ago the the level that things are at right now and the availability of some of the, some of this stuff is really really incredible right i mean you got guys deploying with iron sights and, and whatnot back in the day um like that's what i'd you know uh to be a little bit cliche i qualified on iron sights you know and then had the m68 yep. you know cco that that you gotta <laughs> put on after the fact right um, yeah 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 but but a lot of this stuff you know like the the price point for it is really manageable right in terms of what you're getting out of it value wise um you know if, if you had to pick one pistol or rifle you know what what system are you going after first like you you'd want both right but i'd say it depends on your situation a little bit right if you're in an urban area where you need to conceal carry a lot you know go pistol if you're in a rural area and you're worried about people on your you know uh attacking your your farmstead or something like that or homestead um yeah you're gonna want to go with the rifle uh, but really, you, you want to be proficient with with both of those. But it is incredible what uh, like what PSA is putting out, right? I mean, some people have given them a hard time in the past for some stuff, but man, I'm impressed with what they've got. You know, I'm impressed with uh, um, you know what they're able to do at the, especially at that price point. It's incredible. Like I don't know how they put that product out. It's it's awesome. <laughs> it is, and I am. Uh, we'll just let the cat out of the bag. I am going to have Palmetto State on, on the podcast in the next few days. That's uh, awesome. so yeah, it, it's, I'm going to have them. I'm going to have another company on as well. That's going to be a, a special surprise. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they're very anxious to get on and, uh, talk about, a lot of different things. And, and that's going to be one of the big questions that I ask is, you know, for the price point, you guys are, are turning out some incredible stuff. How are you able to do that? Um, you know, and, and I think that it's going to be a good topic of conversation, but I couldn't agree more, man. And, and, you know, like you said, it, well, here's the other thing too, is, is that Palmetto state. Yeah. They, they've got, uh, in in the Gucci gun community, you know, it's it's just like with golfers and golf clubs and 
sports cars and watches and you know like any anything that entails some sort of expense is going to create an elitism uh and some gatekeeping you know the the communications world amateur radio and all that it's the same way and uh you know some people equate how much money you've spent on things to your level of proficiency and you know you should definitely be able to buy uh good really good gear and you should definitely not cheap out on things but for the the reality of most people as uh clay martin put it uh the other day on a podcast a lot of people on main street are hurting and you know two thousand dollar investment sounds like a lot of money to a lot of people and um and it is you know the reality is is that it is so when you are uh looking at you know budgeting versus justification you can get a lot done and with that that baseline gear and then work your way up. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I ever made when when I got into this, you know, uh, coming back from my second trip to Iraq, I wanted a, a 1911, you know, and I had that that deployment money that was burning a hole in my pocket, you know, and and uh, as it always does, that's why they put all those gun stores right there at the at the gates of Fort Bragg, you know. Yeah, they sure do. <laughs> I mean, because they know, they know, you know, and so next thing I know, uh, I'm walking in Guns Plus, um, you know, right there in Spring Lake, the big, the, the big gun store in Spring Lake, and I'm walking right in there, and I'm going to buy the nicest 1911, the most tricked out 1911 there is, and, you know, I was, I was totally new to that, like, you know, shot plenty of M9s, um, but, I'm going to buy the most high end 1911 ever. Right. And so I did. And so, you know, next thing I know, uh, I had the, the most high end 1911 they had on the rack. It was a Springfield TRP operator with a bull barrel on it. And, you know, all, all the bells and whistles, Trajicon adjustable sights and like everything. And I spent a ridiculous amount of money on this handgun. And the first time I took it to the range, Man, I was all over the place with this thing because I wasn't, I, I was not used to one, the 1911. I wasn't used to anything about it, you know, and, and I'm trying to shoot it like an M9 and it's, that's a total different weapons platform. And, you know, at first it was like, man, you know, I, I thought I was really good with the M9 and now I'm shooting this 1911 and I ain't as good as I thought I was. You know, and so it took a lot of time, a lot of trigger time to build that skill level up. I would have been way better off buying, if I wanted a 1911, buying a stripped down something basic, you know, for, for not a lot of money, something like a, a Rock Island or something, and beating that thing to death with a high round count and then graduating up to the better handgun. You know, but that that's, I, at the time, uh, I think I was... I was like 23 and you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're 23, you know, and, and the worst thing you can do is as a, a, a young stud is, is put a bunch of money in, in your pocket. Um, Cause it's, you know, especially with guns, you, you're going to end up blowing it, man. Yeah. And no, I got a similar story. I, I, first time shooting handguns was in the, the Q course and I did, not very well on our, you know, range, range day on it. Um, never, never done it before and decided after that, Hey, I'm going to go get 
a pistol that I can train on. So I went out and bought a Kimber 1911 and then started shooting on my own on the weekends with that thing in order to, to get proficient. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a decent pistol, right. And not the same as a Beretta, right. That double action, single action that you got. I actually kind of like the, the Berettas. I miss them a bit, but, um, but yeah. same sort of thing. You don't yeah. really need a high end, high end, you know, gun per se in order to gain proficiency. The, there's a guy that I shoot with that uh, he runs some practical rifle competitions at the club that I train out of. And he's a 20 year SF guy, really good shooter. He used to run race guns, like a race gun for, for, you know, some of the newer listeners is like a tricked out rifle that is designed in such a way that like there's minimal recoil and can shoot super fast and, you know, really tuned for competition shooting. Uh, but some guys were giving him a hard time about winning all these competitions against them in like these practical rifle competitions with just, uh, you know, with this race gun. So he went out, got a PSA, had a buddy Cerakote it so it looks a little bit nicer. PSA AR-15, right? Just like the super basic one. And that's what he runs at competitions. And he still beats everybody every weekend, right? <laughs> like this guy's still yeah. smoking everybody <laughs> with, the, with the PSA. Um, yeah. You know, so they can't yeah. say like, oh, it's your nice Gucci, you know, $3,000 race yeah. gun. It's like, no, I'm I'm... I'm running the, you know, the like, you know, um, I don't want to call them cheap because they're actually, you know, they're, they're good, uh, good rifles, but I'm running like a low cost AR-15 and I'm crushing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. It, it's, you know, it, and that's, that's one of those things like that you, people that only live online, they don't, they don't get that, you know, the, uh, the, the and, and I'm kind of sighing a little bit because I don't want to dive down that that rabbit hole. But like the the guys that only live for the follower count or you know the social media cloud or, or like whatever, man. Um, you know they're never gonna understand that fact. Um, you know it, it's it's just it it's all part and parcel of it, man. It, it really is. But, uh, those, those are always cool stories. Like a, a guy shows up with, you know, something that's perfectly serviceable and just smokes everybody else out there, you know, like, Hey, it's, it, you know, I, I, it's, it's not the cost of the weapon. It is the skill level of the operator, you know? Yeah. And you'll see it a lot when you have somebody that has new gear too, you know, that they haven't really gotten acquainted with yet. Right. It's like, oh, I got all the cool stuff now, but well, did you zero it correctly? Have you run it before? Do you know, do you know how to use that particular setup? Right. Um, and, and you learn pretty quick where you're at with it, but I really want to try the, uh, the PSA dagger. I haven't, um, you know, when, when you're talking about cost efficient guns, that looks like it's a great trade off, but I don't know, you know, I haven't personally tested it yet. So I'm excited to, to give that one a go at some point. I don't currently have one. Um, we, I do have one of the guys on the team that is, uh, currently evaluating one and his, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's a Glock 19 essentially, uh, right, yeah. with a couple of, it, it's specifically, it's a gen three Glock 19, uh, for the most part. And, and, you know, for a lot of people that don't know, uh, Glock 19, or Glock 19 Glock had patents on and have patents on each one of their weapons. The, uh, the patent on the Glock gen three 19 expired 
And that's what gave rise to all of the uh, the 80 percent uh, lowers and uh, really the, the explosion of this industry. And that's why you have a lot of companies out there because, it, you know, PSA isn't the only one that, that's producing one. There's a few others uh, that, that are out there as well that are producing actions that are very similar to the Gen 3 Glock 19 and uh, have uh, most parts commonality uh, between them. And the the only thing that I can say so far uh, from the dagger and, and the testing process is dagger is that the trigger leaves a little bit to be desired. Uh, the safety mechanism on the trigger is, is not the standard Glock one. And they, they went to something that's a little bit different. And, uh, the guy that's testing it said that that could be a little bit better. Uh, so, you know, th there's that, um, that seems to be the opinion that's mirrored by a, a lot of folks online. But, you know, when, when you're talking about buying a, a standard Gen 3 trigger for less than 100 bucks and dropping that in, and it, it's a, a, a drop-in component, um, and even some of the better triggers that are out there. I know Zev makes one for, for about $120 or so. I, I really don't see where you can beat it. Um, I, I think at that point it becomes a really a, a moot point. And uh, it's just really cool, man. It, it, we we live we live in an interesting time. Like they, there's a lot to, to for people to get kind of black pilled and negative about. But at the same time, man, they, there's also a lot of things that it's just like, man, this is a really incredible time of of uh, uh, firearms manufacturing of uh, you know the prepping and survival community, the training community. There's so many good things that are going on out there man it's it's just really hard for me to be negative absolutely it's kind of crazy to think how spoiled we are right now versus where firearms were you know even 20 years ago or something like that uh where we have so many options in terms of <laughs> what we could get you know and the fact that you can buy some of the optics and some of the the, the rifles that are available uh out there right now at a pretty low price point is awesome the uh the trigger thing, that is something I've experienced with a lot of lower lower end pistols or lower cost pistols is that usually the trigger is kind of where things are like that trigger squeeze just isn't what you're expecting or what you're you're looking for. So that that's a good point on that. Um, but on uh, on the Glocks, it's pretty interesting to see what they're what people are doing with the modularity of that. It's like, uh, you know, like cars back in the day or, or personal computers or something like that, where it's you can build almost <laughs> whatever you want. Yeah, man, it 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 really is. It, it's it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Bryce, thank you so much for being on with us. Uh, I, I think the the Radio Contra audience is got so much uh, is going to get so much out of this. I know that you know I have a lot of takeaways from it myself. It, it's been a blessing to be able to talk to you, and I want to get you on. Uh, again in the near future to just because sitting down with you your perspective on stuff is is really really incredible where can people find you and what classes do you have coming up yeah so you can find me on my website intrepidtactics.com i'm also on you know twitter i'm pretty active on and some other social sites i've got an instagram account um 
I've got a couple courses coming up. So I'm going to do a rifle one, uh, the Thomas Dustin carving course in February. And then we're going to do pistol one and rifle two in March. Uh, after that, you know, there are going to be some more dates coming up in, in April and May that uh, aren't on the calendar yet. But once I get them up there, um, you know, I'll, I'll put out the word. Uh, just want to say thanks for having me on. It's been awesome. A pleasure talking with you. I'm a big fan of Radio Contra, a big fan of what you've been doing. Uh, you know, I think you're doing really, really amazing stuff for, uh, you know, the community, our country, uh, just across the board. And would love to be on again, you know, when the opportunity comes up. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's been an honor. Brother, God bless you. Thank you for being on with us. Everybody, again, be positive. Don't get black pilled about stuff in the day to day. America can't afford for people to get black pilled, to get disenfranchised, to bury their heads in the sand. Be optimistic about stuff. Get out there and train. There's a whole gigantic community out there that is waiting to receive you with open arms. With that said, God bless, and I'll talk to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout. Out. Let's go.